You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Just the other day, we had an amazing celebration uh, of Tom and Christine's marriage, and we just love them to death, and they're so awesome. There was a lot of laughter, and there was a lot of giggling, actually, between the two as I was, as I was giving my sermon, and they're like a couple of school kids, but that's what I love about them. Um, the reception was wonderful, and it was just an all-around good time, and, um, and you know, sadly, my wife, Grace, she couldn't make it. She was on call, but later that night when I saw her, she... Um, Right before she got rushed back to the hospital, she said, how was it? How was the wedding? And I told her everything I could, and, and her heart, you could just see it. Her heart was just getting so full. She was just getting so happy. Uh, but then the dreaded phone rang. The dreaded phone rang, and there was another sick person, a really sick person. And then another call came, like 10 minutes after. It was a sick baby. And then another call came. Someone was getting rushed into the ER, and she had to get, she, it was an admission, so therefore she had to go. And, and I'm thinking, man, can't life just be stable for one second? And I say all this because I think, I think Jacob's sons in ancient Egypt faced something similar. Because at this point, they're living in relative peace and prosperity. They're doing well. It was good. But on the other hand, there were a lot of uncertainties they faced, too. For one thing, Egypt wasn't their home. We know that. I mean, here's the thing. Even if you've temporarily stayed with someone, and let's say that host is just extremely gracious and hospitable, and they say things like, make yourself comfortable. Mi casa, su casa, right? Make yourself comfortable. Even then, you still know as much as you would want to, you really can't. You can't really put your, kick your feet up on the, onto the table, coffee tables just yet, Right? Egypt just wasn't their home. It just wasn't familiar yet. They weren't living in the land that God promised. And this land of Egypt was far, far, far away from all that was familiar. But not only that, they were living at the convenience of the Pharaoh. So Pharaoh could do anything he wanted at that moment. He could take it away. But even worse still, they were a bit concerned because really their life was in the hands of the prime minister, who was their brother, whom, if you recall, had, they had mistreated big time, many years ago. And if something should go wrong, well, they thought, well, at least I have Daddy Dearest to be there to be the buffer between us and Joseph and of Egypt, but no, their aged father was dying. Then what? What happens then if you were to die? And to make matters even worse or even more uncertain, it's not like Jacob in his dying words told them all that everything would be okay. Rather, his dying words were about holding them accountable for the sins of their past. It's like this. Sons, gather around. I'm dying now. And all I want to say was, you little punks. You did horrible things. You think I didn't know? I knew every single thing. And you know what? Because you're all so screwed up, I'm going to make sure that you don't get an ounce of my inheritance. You don't get an ounce of my wealth. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and curse your entire family line. How would you feel now? How would you feel if you're one of the sons of Jacob? A bit uneasy, maybe. But in the midst of the bad news, 
You know God. He had some startling revelations to make through Jacob, and today we're going to see how Jacob's prophecies actually apply to you and me today, okay? So my first point is this. God's grace exceeds our sins. Can I hear hallelujah? So growing up, the thing that would always scare me were the times when I had, when I was just waiting for the axe to drop when it came to my parents. Now, if I do something wrong, I'm like, okay, I deserve it and all that stuff. But if I disobey, that'd be one thing. But more often than not, it was because of a bad grade at school. So if I, if I got a bad grade on my interim or my report card, I'm not kidding here. I would get panic attacks. I would honestly get panic attacks where I couldn't breathe, and I'd start heaving, and I'd, start, I'd have to go outside. And I remember watching on TV some people getting a brown paper bag, and so I'd do that, but I didn't know if I was doing it correctly, so I just made things even worse. And so I just... And they were honest panic attacks, and I think God knew how strict my parents were so that he actually gave me actual panic attacks that led me to the hospital sometimes to, I think, ease the anger of my parents so that they would kind of pity me, you know? But they didn't really feel sorry for me. It was rough growing up, not only with one tiger parent, but with two. Other than that, my childhood was great. But have you ever had that feeling, just hoping that whatever you did, that wrong thing, that messed up, screwed up thing you did would be forgotten or be excused. It's like we die a thousand deaths before anything happens. And I think that's how Judah felt when he waited to see his aged father Jacob and what he had to say about him. Because if you recall, a couple weeks ago, we heard the consequences of the sins of Reuben, the consequences of the sins of Simeon and Levi, and the things that were said about them were harsh. And Judah knew he was no better than them. Okay, so here's a little bit about Judah. And this is why he was kind of panicking. Judah is the one who raised two sons, who were so wicked that God killed them. Just think about that. He raised two sons who were so wicked that God killed them. He struck them dead. Judah is also the one who refused to take care of his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar. Not only that, Judah is the one who impregnated this daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute. Then, when he found out she was with child, what did he do? He demanded that she come out publicly to be burned alive. This is Judah. In fact, it was Judah who had convinced his brothers those many years ago to sell their brother Joseph to get the money and then to perpetuate the lie and to keep going with that lie towards their grief-stricken father for years and years and years. You see, there was no love there. No love. There was no mercy. There was no compassion about this guy, Judah. So he was just waiting because he knew something bad was going to happen. If something horrible happened to my older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, then goodness gracious, look at my life. I'm waiting for the axe to drop because if my brothers got hit this hard with their one-time infractions, how much worse should Judah expect for a life of just absolutely disgusting, reprehensible, wicked, sinful behavior? So may for you, you're thinking, okay, hold on. I got something similar here. 
Maybe you're ashamed of the way that you've been. Maybe you're ashamed and disgusted with your past. And so you're waiting for the inevitable acts of judgment, the inevitable acts of consequence to fall. Maybe for you, you have a fear of exposure that you're not as great as you think people might see you as. You're not as holy. Maybe for some others here, it's about being called out for trying to fake it until you make it. So you're constantly looking over your shoulder, You're hoping to get better, but at the same time, you're just wrapped, wrapped up in the sins of your past. It is addiction, perhaps. I don't know what it is, and it is hard for you to let go of these things, and you're just scared. You're trembling, and you're having these spiritual panic attacks because you're waiting for the axe to fall on you. So maybe like Judah, it's only a matter of time before your name is called, and so you're afraid. Let me tell you a little something about our God. You know that God has something called grace. And do you know that that grace is real? It is real. It is not some figment of our spiritual imagination. It is not some abstract concept. Nor is it necessarily simply a do-over. Grace is the most beautiful and most powerful thing that you and I will ever encounter in this life. Grace, it pushes us back against our understanding of what is fair and what people deserve. And so I love the way that this one book called One Way Love describes it. I want you to hear me just for a moment. It says, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measure. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or my so-called gifts. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. You see, he says, Grace is a one-way love. That's God. So you see, if you recall, God has been doing something within Judah. Judah's been changing. Changing. In spite of his cruelty before, Judah had apparently been repenting. And he was actually concerned for his father's grief. So in chapter 44, he was so concerned with his father's grief that guess what he did? He volunteered to be imprisoned and enslaved in Benjamin's place rather than returning home without the favored son, Benjamin. Get this. He would rather live for however long in the disgusting prison cells and rot there than see his father die in sorrow. He would never have thought to do that before. You see, God's grace has already been at work in spite of all his sins. And did you know that God's grace is at work in your life today too? He's doing something and you may not see it. In other words, there's change in Judah's life. Not completely, but there's change. And it's working. If you want to know if you are responding to the grace of God, ask yourself, is there change in my life? Is something going? Is something working? So now in Jacob's prediction concerning Judah, you can see, man, how God's grace is even... An even great measure. Judah isn't scrapped 
or thrown to the wayside. No, he's given a place of rule in family. That's crazy. Remember, the guy, the description I just gave you of Judah. God said, Judah, you are going to rule in this family. Reuben was the firstborn son, but he was disqualified because of his sins. Simeon and Levi were next in line, but they were disqualified because of their sins. But now we have Judah who will rule in spite of his sins. Verse 8 says, your father's son shall bow before you. Verse 10 says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will be victorious over his enemies. How is that fair though? How come Reuben and Simeon and Levi and all these other guys, how come they're getting the axe, but now here we see Judah will be victorious? How is that fair? How does that make any sense? It doesn't. That's why it's called grace. So get this, Judah is to rule in place of Joseph. But wait, shouldn't Joseph be the one ruling in place of Judah? Uh, Judah, the perpetrator, is ruling in the place of the victim, Joseph. That still doesn't make sense. The family, the sons of Judah, who was the mean-spirited bully with the disgusting past of reprehensible sins, is now supposed to take the place of the sons of the upright and the obedient and the faithful Joseph with a proven track record of purity and wisdom. And we're thinking, how does that make any sense? How is that fair? Brothers and sisters, what will surprise you the most in life, I don't think will be some sort of crazy supernatural miracle. I don't think it will be when you go to D.C. and you see the Potomac River parts or anything like that. No, no, no. Here it is. As you journey in your life and as you pursue and live out to seek after gospel community and gospel worship and gospel life, you will see that God's grace is often the most surprising event. It is the most shocking event you will ever witness because it's through God's grace that he reclaims the worst sinners. That's crazy to me. I can go around and say, you deserve that, you deserve that, you deserve that, but God, he's in business of reclaiming that and reclaiming him and reclaiming her and reclaiming us. I don't get that. You know the people in your life who you may or may not have written off because they're just that bad? You know how we always say, who's that person you pray for? You immediately know, right? That one person who just is just a bad apple, in the, fam- the black sheep in the family, right? <laughs> Maybe it was you. I don't know. Like they hate God. They hate it when you guys gather together to pray. They're like, oh, this again, right? They hate the church. They're almost militant about how they want nothing to do with God. You see, here's the thing. When the irresistible grace of God calls them, these opposing people become, get this, they become the most transformed, radical disciples of Christ. That's why the people I come across who are vocal about their hatred for Christ, I don't get offended. I don't start sweating. I don't get defensive. Instead, I pray and I smile. Do you know why? Because the whole time I'm thinking, oh, you're going to be amazing on our side. You are going to be amazing. Do you, you get what I'm saying right now? They're going to be amazing. Do you know how just vocal they are? Oh, they're, going to be, they're finally going to be speaking on the right side for the right, for the right Lord, for the right King. Have you been a Judah? Have you been 
a wicked parent, a bully, a divider in the family, a sexually immoral man or woman, a self-righteous, judgmental hypocrite? Have you been merciless, heartless son or daughter who has brought endless grief to your parents? If any of that in any way describes you, then listen up. This is what God is saying. He's saying, you know that guy, Judah, that was his rap sheet. But here it is. You know what he did and what God is calling us to do right now? He says, stop it all and surrender it to Christ. Surrender it to Christ because he's got something called grace. And it far out exceeds and far out outpowers even your darkest sin. That's why we worship God. That's why it's all about God. Grace has been revealed to us on the cross. It was, our, it was for our punishment, and now this wonderful grace is extended to all who turn around and abandon their sin and believe on Jesus, which means that they entrust themselves to Jesus, which means the people who call upon him for mercy to save him, which means people who call upon his grace to save them from their wretchedness. That's what it means. But that's only the beginning of what this passage tells us, and that brings us to our second and final point. It's all about the glory of Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about salvation. It's about his glory. Can you say it's all about his glory? So maybe right now we're all hoping for the wickedness to just stop. Stop with all the crazy, the abortions, with the raping, with the wars, with the pain, with the suffering. And so we have these political parties, these leaders who we think will somehow solve our problems, and they'll say, if you vote for me, then our communities and our states and our nations will prosper under our, our control, under our political party. And so we hope that, that someone will just one day come along who's got it all together and make life better. But our text today says something otherwise. You see, the only hope is not for a more charismatic or dynamic or intelligent political leader. Our hope for the world and for the entire world is for Jesus to rule. That's it. That's it. So let me reread verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So right here, this verse is the most pivotal point of this entire section, really the, of the entire chapter, because this verse points to none other than to Christ. You know, this key to this whole section is the word Shiloh. Can you say Shiloh? So it's like this, if I were to reread it. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between his feet until Shiloh comes. So what or who is Shiloh? Some interpret it as until the sent one comes. Some still say until the son comes. Some say until the peace giver comes. But to use any of those sent or son or peace giver would mean, require that you had to change a letter of the Hebrew word around. But then a discovery was made in Ezekiel chapter 21 where there was something that was addressed to the last king of Judah before they were sent into exile. And I want to read it. O profane and wicked prince of Israel, who, whose, who day has, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax, this is what the sovereign Lord has to say. Take off the turban, remove the crown. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. It's not you, O little king. It's not you, the next king. 
It is someone who it rightfully belongs to. In other words, this is talking about the Messiah. And it doesn't matter how you read those other interpretations because all those other interpretations talk about Jesus too. Whether it's the sent one who comes, that's Jesus. Whether it's the son who comes, that's Jesus. Whether it's the peace giver who comes, that's Jesus. You see, everything is about Jesus here. So when people say Jesus is only mentioned in the New Testament, nope. You've been seeing it from day one of Genesis chapter 1 all the way through here. In fact, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. It's not about doing good, to be good, to get some more good. No, it's all about are you worshiping the good one? That's it. Are you worshiping Jesus now because he is at the center of all the passages. He is at the center of, get this, your entire life, whether you know it or not. And so verses 11, 12, it talks about Jesus, but something in particular about his glorious reign. And so here we read this donkey's colt tied to a grapevine. So think about that. That's it's kind of ridiculous. Think about a donkey. Now here, I don't have a green thumb, and I don't think I've ever visited a vineyard, to be honest. I've driven by them. I know what they look like. I got Google image, right? But let me tell you. Nothing about these grapevines looks sturdy enough to hold or to tether a donkey to. You get what I'm saying? And that's the point. I wouldn't even tether a chicken to it. So what is this verse saying? This verse is saying that the grapes will be so plentiful, it will be so abundant, so strong, that a man could tether his donkey to the vine. What that means is this that the reign of Christ will be more than just prosperous. It'll be more than simply satisfying. It'll be more than simply good. You get this. His reign will be excessively glorious. Amazing. Indescribable. I mean, that's an entire sermon series on that word alone, glory. But you see, Jesus right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. It's not a question of whether he will rule you or whether he will rule this world. It's a matter of he already does. And for those who haven't surrendered themselves to Christ as king are folks who are simply living in rebellion to the one who already is their king. And so get this, right now, you and I were trying to make sense of his rule and his reign, but God, he's patient and he is slow to anger. And as much as we want things to wrap up and finish up and God bring us home right now, you see, God, he is not killing his enemies because he is converting them into his children. Praise God. Because did you know that one day you were his enemies too? As I was too. There's just so much that's going on in our lives and around the world right now, and maybe you feel overwhelmed by all that's happening. Maybe you have the weight of sin, and you are ashamed, and you feel guilty from your, of your past, but the message today will be the same message that you hear next week, and the same message you hear the week after, and the week after that, until the rule, of reign, rule and reign of Christ comes to us, and that message is this, surrender yourself to him. He is your king. Abandon yourself to him. He is your Lord. No matter how bad you were, his beautiful grace exceeds all your sins 
and he desires for us to come to him. So get this, not so that we can have a second chance, but so that he can make us new again. That's his promise. Let's pray. In response to what you've heard today, can we take just a moment before, our, before we partake in the Lord's Supper to simply pray and surrender? It's not about, God, how can, now, how can I now just improve my life? How can I now just improve my, my, my perspective? It has nothing to do with that, you see, because it's, it goes beyond just what's superficial, what's external, and the behavioral modifications that you would want. You see, sin is a root issue. And that has to be surrendered. And it can't be, it's, it's a wound so deep that you can't just place a band-aid of positivity, of optimism over. No, you need the surgical hands of our Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe today you have been, and ever since, rebelling. Today's the day where you surrender. Jesus is coming. It's not a threat. It is a fact. He is Lord. Whether you accept him as your Lord or not, he is Lord. And for those of us who have been journeying with him, walking with him in spirit and, and, and feasting upon his word, good. But don't stop there. Go deeper with him. You know what's distracting you. You know what's keeping you at bay. Right now, take a minute or two just to pray and say, God, this is what I'm struggling with. And I want to surrender it before you because you are the one who's going to prevail. You're the one who's going to break, allow me to break through these bondages, through these chains. So God, I just surrender it all to you at this time. Okay? So let's take a moment and pray. Let's do that. And now at this time, as we come before the Lord to remember him for the death and the life of his amazing love and sacrifice, we, we want to use this opportunity to redeclare and testify of his goodness and his faithfulness. This is an act of worship, this Lord's Supper, where we get to remember and count the worth and the meaning of the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus is the source of our lives. He is the source of salvation. For us to both not just have eternal life, but have abundant life too. So as you pray this prayer, this is for the saints, for those who have professed in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, I want to ask that you remain seated. But for those of you who declare Christ to be your King, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord. I want you to join us. This is a time where you get to reflect and judge your own heart. Make sure that you are right with the Lord. And if there is sin that you're harboring, now is the time to say, God, I dare not minimize the sacrifice that you made up on that cross. I relinquish and surrender it before you. Take it from me. And after that, I would ask that you come in the middle and join us in the Lord's Supper. I read from the word, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ Jesus, we thank you that this is a remarkable expression of a relationship, a new relationship, a new covenant relationship that we have with you. That we get to have a oneness in mind and in love and in spirit. Thank you, Lord. I pray that we would understand the severity of, of this act as well, that it was due to our sins that led you up to that cross. And so, Lord, there is such godly sorrow here, but we also express thankfulness that you would send your Son to die on our behalf. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we remember you and as we worship you. Christ, we honor you. We love you. And pray that you will continue to lead us and that you would reign supreme in our lives, not just as the ticket to salvation, but no, Lord, as our Lord and Master for each and every day. Lead us. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.